Good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Jacinta, and today I'll be reading the Bible for us. Um, but before I start, um, let's pray. Gracious God, your word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Today, when we hear your voice, deliver us from hardness of heart. Help us to put away everything that keeps us from persevering in your way. For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Today's reading comes from Colossians 3, 1 to 11, which you can find on page 1184 of your church Bibles. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have, been, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be at church with you. A very warm welcome if you're new or visiting. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister here. Uh, and I'd love to meet you afterwards. I normally stand outside in the sun. Well, the sun's back, so I stand outside the sun, and I'd love to meet you between here and morning tea. Uh, we are in a, um, a series looking at this New Testament letter of the, to the Colossians, um, written by the Apostle Paul um, in the first century AD. We've spent about four weeks there, and we've, we started thinking about the idea that we've been relocated as people. That's how Paul describes the, the moment of conversion in the life of a believer, it's being relocated from one place, the kingdom of darkness, as he describes it, um, to the kingdom of light, this place that is ruled by the loving rule of Christ, the kingdom of his son. And so the question is, what does it look like to be a person who's been relocated from this one place to another? That's really where Paul is shifting his mind as we come to this second half of the letter. Now, I, I've only lived in the North Shore for the last oh, nearly three years. I moved here in 2020. I've never, I never really lived in the North Shore before. I've rarely even travelled through here, actually. Um, I, uh, I, I came for a couple of 21sts about 20 years ago or thereabouts. Uh, thought it was a bizarre place and didn't come back. Uh, um, I used to live in the inner west, but having moved here... I've had to adjust. I've had to adjust to the relocation. I've had to adjust to big streets uh, with parking and beautiful green trees 
and not having to drive more than three or four kilometres for any shop you wanted in the world. Every, every franchise has an outlet in Chatswood. Did you know that? You look up, you say, where is, where is the nearest whatever? There's at least one, maybe two of them within five kilometres of this site. Uh, I've had to adjust to overpriced takeaway. I've never paid more for a piece of Lebanese chicken in my life than since living in the North Shore. I've had to adjust to overdressed uh, school pickup. I've realised you can't just wear your gardening best to pick up the kids from school. I always feel like a slob, and I'm normally wearing something I'd normally wear. So uh, I've really had to adjust to relocating to the North Shore. Look, and a lot of these things are really great. They're, 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 they're things that I count um, a blessing, actually. Uh, the joy of walking down the streets and not copying a, a dosing of carbon monoxide as a semi-trailer passes you by on Liverpool Road. These are, these are blessings. If you're watching and you live in the inner west, I still have a soft spot for the inner west. What does it look like to be relocated, though, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? And Paul says very clearly in this, in this chapter, as we turn to the second half of the book of Colossians, that it really means a new life, a new self, a radical transformation. So have a look here, verse 3 to 7, he says, uh, you, interesting, by the way, this, if you're new, the, the big screens halfway through the building are new to the building as well. You, you're as new as the screens. This is good news for those of you who can't see as well. As a preacher, I'm aware this will now incline people to sit further at the back of the building. There is still a screen up here. You can sit up the front. Um, this is what Paul says. says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now... You must also rid yourselves of all such things. You used to walk one way, but now you're meant to live another way. You're meant to get rid of those things that were your old life. And in case we didn't pick it up, he repeats it in the next verses. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. This is the picture that Paul is painting. Uh, He's saying, you had an old self, But having come to Christ, having been moved from one kingdom to another, a new self has come into play. play. The impact of following Christ is this radical change, a radical change in the life of a believer. Actually, if you go back, he says your old self with its practices. I think we sometimes think of the Christian faith as a a worldview primarily with no real life benefit. But Paul is really saying there is a whole way of doing life that you used to have. But when you come to follow Jesus, there is a whole new way of doing life. There is a radical change. And in fact, I've tried to visually depict it, but I realised this morning as I was preaching at the early morning service that this actually should be more like a T-junction, not like a fork in the road. Because actually the change that's taking place is more radical than just some slight deviation on the way that you were living. Now you think, oh, this is Paul. I've heard about this guy, Apostle, the Apostle Paul. He's a bit, he's a bit extreme, And so we sometimes do dismiss what Paul has to say in the New Testament. But you have to understand that Paul's ministry, authorised by the Lord Jesus Christ, actually is a reflection of Jesus' ministry. Jesus starts his ministry at the start of Mark's Gospel with these words, 
repent and believe. The proclamation at the heart of Jesus' good news starts with the words, repent and believe. Now, repent is not just the, 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 the words, sorry. I often say this to my kids. Repentance is not just saying sorry. It's seeking to change the way you behave. <laughs> you know when your daughter says, after having hit your son, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Sammy, I'm sorry. I say, Harriet, you need to change the way you behave. It's not enough just to say sorry. And Paul is saying, when you are moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you, a whole new self with its practices accompanies that transformation. A radical change takes place in our life. And you know what? I think we're going to read a passage which might trigger some people in terms of the things that it talks about. I think actually at its baseline, this is where the Christian faith is most challenging because it is actually saying to you, you can't just, it's not just you bolt something on. Some people think of the Christian life as, oh, I've got this new hobby, which I'm now, I'm now, I'm now, I'm now on board with. I'm going to be at church every week. That's, that's my new thing on Sundays. It used to be the farmer's markets, but now it's church. But everything else in my life is ostensibly the same thing. But Paul is saying, no, he's not saying, you used to live one way, now add these things to it. He's saying, you actually put off that old way and you live a new way. And, and, and this means, this is, this is interesting, those of us who've become Christians later in life, when we're in adulthood, can really identify the change. We can really say, maybe it's because the, our old self was actually something we were very much aware of. And so having come to faith, we even identify, even if we're newer in our Christian life as adults, we can at least identify the places where we need to change, even if we haven't changed yet. We're aware of the discomfort of becoming a Christian. If you've been a Christian most of your life, perhaps even have grown up in a Christian household and would identify as a Christian from a young age, this is something that you either take for granted or don't even realise. But... To be a Christian is a radical change. It's not, it's not, you might have grown up in Judeo-Christian culture, but there is something that must change in your life. Right? And I think this is where the Christian message is actually most challenging for us. Because we live in a world which is actually anti-changing yourself. What do I mean? Well, we, live in a, we live in a world, and it's not just the last 20 years, okay? We like to think, oh, the world's changed so much in the last 20 years. Back when I was a young kid, no, no, no. This is like the last 150 years of the way of thinking, which is that the best you is you, as you are, unfiltered, unencumbered by the expectations of tradition or culture or the Bible's teaching. The best you is the authentic you. You do you, you might have heard someone say. Or you might have even had come out of your own lips. Be true to yourself. We live in a world where actually the best thing that someone can do is not be constrained by someone else's or some, somebody else's or some other um, teachings, understanding of how to live life. The best way to live is just to express yourself, to let people encounter who you are. Now, the Christian message, of course, is saying, no, there are just things about you that need to change. 
There's kind of fundamental, radical things, changes that need to take place in your life. And, and this clashes with this worldview. Now, before you reject it, and I'm sure there are some of us who hold this worldview um, unwittingly so, but there are others for whom you're, still, you're just opening up yourself to the Christian faith, and you, this is where you find that you think this is old Christianity. Oh, I hate that stuff, that tradition. But let me just push you a little bit more in terms of your worldview, that worldview which says the best you is you, your authentic self, right? Be yourself. Well, before you embrace that too wholeheartedly, just think about, just think about the inconsistency of it. First of all, people adopt that position because they think, oh, I don't want to conform anymore to what someone else says I should be like. But what if by rejecting conformity, you're actually conforming just to a new way of thinking? What if we'll wake up, you know, now we look back and we look at the 30s and we say, oh, they all wore the same hats, they all dressed the same way. They were all just conforming, right? What if people wake up in 50 years and they look at us and say, oh my gosh, they're all conforming. Here's what, here's what one uh, writer from the BBC says. He says, we may look back at self-expression as the terrible deadening conformity of our time. We're all self-expressing. I mean, don't get, don't, that's not a reason to reject it, but it is a reason to say, oh, maybe that worldview which says that I should just be me and not conform to the rest of society and its expectations is just another, another form of conformity. It's, a, it's another worldview and mindset. There's, a, there's an inconsistency, but I think the bigger challenge is not a philosophical inconsistency. I think there's an inherent fragility that you bring on yourself if you put on your true self the, the, the responsibility of determining your value and worth. You know, if, if people knowing who you are is the key indicator for whether you're worthwhile and valuable, that's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot resting on who you are. What if as you express yourself, as, if, if you're just true to yourself and you don't allow anyone else to speak any kind of change into your life, you come to realise that who you are is not that great? Or worse still, what if everyone else comes to realise that who you are is not that great? Then, can you see how, how burdening that genuinely would be? The thing that you're resting on for your sense of worth and value has been rejected by other people. And what's more, that's who you are. So now what do you do? Where do you go? I mean, this is the story of that great Disney film, Frozen. Many of you who are parents have probably watched this film and not thought too deeply. Go back and watch. This, this film and Elsa is a, is a testament to the worldview that, you know, just express yourself. If you express yourself and people come to encounter who you are, then they'll love it, Right? But I love this quote from someone who's reading the, watching the film. It says, what if the self you are true to is the one that no one else wants to be with? What if the self you, beca uh, you become is dastardly in its final form, not beautiful and attractive? You see, we always think, ah, oh, I'm just going to be the true me because actually people will love that. But what if people don't? What if they don't? What if, like Elsa in Frozen, you let it go, as she says, or sings, and turn away and slam the door, only to find yourself in a lonely ice palace of your own making, a palace that's also a prison? That's the storyline as well. What if you are so committed to who you are, you wake up one day and you realise no one wants to be near you, or with you, or for you? You see, that mindset, that worldview, 
which says that just be true to yourself, don't let anyone change you, is inherently a fragile way of thinking about yourself. And the Bible, in response to that, says, no, you need to change. There are things about each of us that need to change, and quite radically, primarily because you have now, as a Christian, been moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So the question is, what are the things that need to change? Well, the list that Paul gives here is not exhaustive, but it's interesting, the two broad groups that he touches here. He has two lists. They come up in verse 5 and verse 8. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. That's verse 5. And then in verse 8, if you skip forward, he says, Rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Now, if you were to kind of broadly describe these two groups, the first one has to do with sexuality, um, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. They're all kind of a word group covering kind of various, um, various uh, attitudes and approaches to sexuality. Sexual immorality, oh, I'll come back to it. The second list has to do with language, with the way you speak. Uh, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. I think this is really interesting that Paul groups there. Like I said they're not exhaustive in terms of the change that's meant to take place, but it's really interesting that he groups them in this. Lang you know, people say the Bible's out of date, but I think these are still the two touch points in our culture where Christianity really um, rubs up against the worldview language and sexuality. Language. See, in our world, language, your ability to speak, is your way of asserting yourself. I'm entitled to my view, to say what I think. Right? But Paul says, oh, actually, when you become a follower of Christ and you move from one kingdom to another, you think of speech in a different way. It's not primarily your way of asserting your opinion or asserting yourself. It's actually... You're meant to use it a different way for the sake of others. But of course, sexuality, even more so, we know, is an area where the Christian faith and the worldview are often clashing. Paul says sexual immorality. It's a, it's a phrase that he uses almost as a technical term in the New Testament to capture um, sexuality, practice, sexual practices outside the marriage union between one man and one woman for life. Now, we think, I think a lot of people think when they read that, or they think, particularly in our culture, because we're always talking about um, same-sex relationships, we think primarily of that. But Paul is talking about a much broader category than that, actually. He's, he's talking about any kind of sexual activity outside of the marriage union. And he says, when you become a Christian, you have a completely new attitude to that, to that part of your life. A completely new attitude. What's really interesting, though, about verse 5 is there's a, there's a progression that is taking place in this list. It starts with sexual immorality, but then he moves through to this concept of evil desires. And then he ends on the word idolatry. Now, in Ephesians, there's a similar list where idolatry is even more closely linked to all the other things in the list. But I think you can still take the inference that actually what Paul is saying is that Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed are all in some way forms of idolatry. There's a progression that's going through here. So 
sexual immorality we talked about, but evil desires, the word there is like an over-desire. He's moving from things which we might say immediately on the surface, in practice, are clearly against the way the Bible has been talking, but he's deepening. He's saying actually not just the practices, but even the over-desire of things that are good results is, is a form of idolatry, is a form of worshipping God falsely or worshipping the wrong gods, building your life on the wrong gods. He's saying all of these things are actually a form of putting something apart from God at the centre. This is very challenging because for some of us, we think sexual morality, okay, yep, I get it, no sex apart from the, the marriage union, that, I'm on board with that. But when we get to evil desires... Well, that starts, to, that starts to challenge us, you see. Because evil desires can be things that are good, but for which you have an over-desire for. I'm, I'm reminded of the story of a young couple who I, uh, in a previous church, was doing marriage prep with. I was, I was convinced that they shouldn't get married. They were too young. They didn't really know each other. And I could see, uh, for the young girl particularly, who'd come from quite a broken family, that she was getting married because she wanted the dream of, a, of a, a, a functional family unit. She looked at other families and she saw what they had and she really wanted this. And so I actually ran marriage prep with them much longer than I normally did, like an extended six weeks. And I was, I was hoping as we worked through the scriptures, as we read some um, marriage books, that it would become evident to them that perhaps they should wait for a bit longer before getting married. Nonetheless, they were convinced that they wanted to get married. They said all the right things, and so I, I married them. Four years later. Now, you know, you know what? She was driven in part to a very good thing, marriage, right? But she was driven to it because she saw it satisfying something, which perhaps it wasn't built to do. She had a very strong desire for this. And it became evident because four years, about four years into them being married... And her husband decided he didn't want to be married anymore. And so he moved back with his parents, and she was devastated to the point that she uh, attempted suicide. Terrible, terrible. She was admitted to a, a care facility uh, and, and stayed there for a number of weeks. And, you know, we, uh, Emily and I went and visited her a couple of times, and she was, she was destroyed. And in that time, that's when it became self-evident that actually, devastatingly, marriage had become an idol for her because it bore the weight of her life, so to speak. Without it, life wasn't worth doing. Now, of course, if your marriage falls apart, you should be devastated. But if it pushes you to the point where you consider, is it worth me living still? That tells you that perhaps that marriage has been the thing that actually has given you your life source and power. You can see how evil desires can be idolatry. You can see how something good, marriage, by making it ultimate, becomes an evil over desire, doesn't it? And it doesn't, I mean, Paul's list here, and I said it's not exhaustive, is about sexuality and relationships, right? It could be other things. It could be your job. It could be your family, it could be your children. It could be security and safety. Whatever it is, 
These are not bad things, but making them ultimate puts them in that category of evil desires, evil over-desires, and they're evil because ultimately they shift God from the centre. You know, we talked about the change that's coming about. The challenge of the Christian life is not so much God just saying, don't do X, Y, and Z, right? It is saying, when you become a follower of Christ, you are shifting from me or someone or something at the centre of my life, being the source of my reason for living, to God being the centre of my life, to God being the source and reason for me living. This is, this is the fundamental challenge in the Christian life. When Paul says, when Paul says, at having been moved from the kingdom of light, darkness into the kingdom of light, and you should therefore change, this is what he's talking about. A deeper change than just putting off certain activities. It is a heart reorientation. The question, of course, is how do you then change, right? I mean, this is... You just, most of us can find something that sits on that left-hand side or your right-hand side. Something that tends to find its way into the centre of your life. How do you change? Well, Paul gives us the basis for his change in the first verse of this section. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Since you have been raised with Christ, this is the foundation for change. Being with Christ. We talked about it last week as being in Christ. But it's the same idea of being joined to Christ. Being so bound to him that where he is, you are. With Christ. And Paul gives us some, some kind of hints about what it might look like to be united to Christ. He says, you, you set your hearts on things above. That is your deepest motivations and desires on the things above. And you set your minds. That is, you shape your worldview in light of the things that are above, not the clouds, so to speak, but the, the heavens, the coming kingdom. And in verse 4, he, he says this beautiful line. He says, when Christ, who is your life. I love that. I think that's such a great insight into thinking about what it means to be so bound to Christ. It is for Christ to be your life. By inference, not for those other things to be your life, but for Christ to be your life. Hey, we just lost our image. It's back. For Christ to be your life. I don't know. You, just think about what you might put in that sentence as an alternate to Christ. My work is my life. My children are my life. My parents are my life. It's a way of saying, this is what I devote all of myself to, really, fundamentally, when you strip everything else aside. Paul says, when Christ, who is your life. That's what it means to be joined to Christ. To say, he's my life. He's my reason for purpose. He's the thing that ultimately gives me joy and meaning. And... Uh, What's really interesting about what Paul's describing here is if, you, if I just take you back to verse 1 here, right? He says, the way you change and, and hear this and be re relieved by this, the way you change is not by saying, oh, I need to make X 
marriage, whatever it is, less important. He says, I need to make Christ more important. See, the way, he, the way he tries to spark change in the Colossians is by saying, look at Jesus. Look at who you are. I need to, just, I need to take hold of Christ. I mean, yes, you put off and you get rid of but those things are secondary. The real means of change is by being with Christ, by joining to Christ. That's how you change in the Christian life. Now, the question is, why would you do that? Why would you join yourself to Christ? And the answer is, uh, is, is in this idea of being united to Christ because that's where the power is in Christian life. In uh, chapter 2, which Gordon spoke on last week, he talked about us being rooted and established in Christ. And Paul is picking up the image of a, of a tree, right? But the, the, the vitality of a tree is not so much its roots. I mean, it needs roots. But if its roots are in um, soil that is dry and without nutrients, the tree will still, dry, will still die, right? The psalmist says, what is it that makes the, the trees flourish? It's that they are planted near living streams. It is the soil that gives the, 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 the tree growth in that metaphor. And Paul picks that up and he says, the soil is not you. It is not your decision even to be united to Christ. It is Jesus. Jesus is the source of your, your capacity to change and grow. Are you grappling with something which you see is taking up the centre of your life? The source of change is the power of Christ in you. It's why Paul starts in the beginning of this letter with that great hymn about the sufficiency of Christ because the more you understand how extraordinary Jesus is, he's in all and he works through all and he sustains all, the more you understand who Christ is, the more you see he is all I need to bring about the change in my life. Christ will change me. That's why you join yourself to Christ. But also, you join yourself to Christ because look what Paul says will happen. Verse 4. You also, when Christ appears, will appear with him in glory. We are joined to Christ, not just because of what Jesus might help bring about in our life here and now, but because we understand that being joined to Christ, when he comes on the last day, when all of his sufficiency and supremacy that Paul talks about, and, and we believe by faith, will be revealed in fact, we will not have to cower in that sufficiency and that supremacy, but we will share in it. We will share in it. You know, you take the image of the President of the United States. He comes into the press room to brief the press and everyone else stands back. He has the microphone because his glory is different to the glory of his office, is different to the glory of all those others who stand there. But when Christ appears, you stand with him, sharing in his glory. Because you have bound yourself to Christ. Jesus says, Jesus wants your life to change. He wants it to change. But ultimately, because that is just a journey to this last place where you will appear with him in his glory, shining as he shines, beautified as he is beautiful. Revelation says, as I finish, Revelation has this great picture of Revelation 21, the last day. Jesus Christ will meet his church 
And his church will be, we're told, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. It's, it's the last image of the scriptures. Jesus is like the young groom standing at the end of the aisle. His eyes are glistening. For whom? For you. For you. With Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, what a promise that the Lord Jesus Christ will bring us with him in glory. Lord God, would you so bind us to yourself and so change us that each day we might take one more step towards glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.